Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming out today, a cold day. I'm Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton. Uh, I uh, am uh, pleased to uh, have our third lecture in a series that we do annually, uh, the Alpheus T. Mason uh, Lectures in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, The Quest for Freedom. Uh, today is the third of four that we'll be doing this year. The fourth will be a lecture by Professor Colleen Sheehan at Villanova University, uh, who is here this uh, semester as a visiting professor in the Department of Politics. Uh, she's teaching a course on early American statesmen and will be speaking on uh, James Madison and the spirit of republicanism later this semester. Today, we have with us Robert Lowry Clinton, who is a professor of political science at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale and chair of the Department of Politics at uh, Carbondale. Uh, professor Clinton earned his doctorate in government from the University of Texas at Austin in 1985, uh, specializing in constitutional law and political theory. He uh, authored a book uh, that came out uh, in hardback in 1989, uh, titled Marbury versus Madison and Judicial Review. Uh, I can I can remember the the, the earth shaking when the book came out. It was. Uh, uh, well recognized as a very important addition to the discussion of the roots of American judicial power and particularly the implications of uh, John Marshall's view of judicial power for thinking about the way the Supreme Court has wielded its Article Three powers uh, in the 20th century. He then uh, published a, uh, authored a book uh, published by the University of Kansas that came out in 1997 uh, titled uh, God and Man in the Law, the Foundations of Anglo-American Constitutionalism, obviously a huge topic of great importance. I went on the Amazon website to uh, see what I could find there, and I was I, – interested and somewhat amused at the first line of the description of the book that you find on the Amazon website. This is how it reads. Is man truly the measure of all things? If so, then perhaps that very premise accounts for our nation's constitutional ills. So I thought that very provocative and, as I say, somewhat amusing. Uh, Professor Clinton is currently working on a history of the Marshall Court and also uh, a, a, a different interest, uh, but also important topic, a volume uh, that is challenging scientific naturalism, what I guess we think of as scientism these days, and its implications for social and political science. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Robert Lowry Clinton. Thank you, Brad. Um, 
I don't know if I deserve that good an introduction, uh, but I'll try to live up to it as best I can. Um, I do appreciate uh, the, the invitation to speak here today. It's a great honor for me. Um, I am familiar with the work of the James Madison Institute, and I think it's important. And so I am, I am honored to be uh, a guest speaker here. A few years ago, I was on my way to the St. Louis airport en route to Washington, D.C. to testify at a House Judiciary Committee hearing. I shared a limousine ride with a noted anthropologist from my university. Can you hear me in the back? I should have. No. Should we use a? Uh, I'm sorry. I've, I, I've been struggling with uh, with 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 laryngitis uh, of sorts for the last uh, few days, and this may be a problem. Um, no, that's not the microphone. This is the microphone. I'm technologically what's the word? Challenged. Yes, that's that's seriously so. Uh, I need to have my son here to minister to these needs. Lean into it a little. Okay, I'll do my best. Um, at any rate, I was sharing a limousine ride with the uh, anthropologist, and she asked me what the hearing was about. Uh, I told her that it was about Congress's role in constitutional interpretation. Her response was a somewhat flabbergasted, what role? Somewhat, though not altogether surprised, I explained that during most periods in American history, Congress had, has been an important player in, con in American constitutional politics, many times a more or less aggressive player. Nonetheless, her bafflement did not subside. We parted company to board our respective flights, and I was left to ruminate on how a highly educated, prominent scholar could have been thoroughly convinced that the first branch of the national government had absolutely nothing to do with determining the meaning of our nation's basic charter of government. After all, we're not talking here about the proverbial man on the street who has trouble answering surveyors' multiple-choice questions about whether the First Amendment protects freedom of speech, requires school desegregation, or prohibits capital punishment. We're talking about a person who knows all these things and much more. Yet she believes that today's governmental division of labor excludes everyone but the Supreme Court from ultimate guardianship of the Constitution. And she is untroubled by that belief. The hearing that I attended on the next day was an unusual affair. Congressional committees don't normally spend much time on issues of fundamental political organization and structure. Such issues are usually treated by politicians as abstract philosophical questions that are essentially academic in nature. But in this instance, Congress's instincts were right. We're still having problems with the sound system? It's okay? All right. A few months earlier, the Supreme Court, for the first time in its long history, had declared in an official opinion that Congress is without power to determine the meaning of constitutional provisions with conclusive effect. To make matters worse, the Court had made this declaration in a decision that overturned a law passed by overwhelming majorities in both the House and the Senate. The academic issue had become political. The hearing was held by the Subcommittee on the Constitution. The chair opened the hearing with an admission that this kind of meeting was not business as usual. 
The House members panel that followed the chair's opening remarks confirmed what he had said. Two members implored the committee to reopen the issue of Congress's constitutional authority. Two other members, with equal passion, implored the committee to take care that the reopening would not lead to emasculation of the courts. The panel that followed, of which I was a member, echoed these sentiments, though with a more academic flavor. The most striking thing about the hearing, to my mind, was the degree to which people on both sides of the aisle and issue had difficulty getting their minds around the idea that the Supreme Court might not really have ultimate or final interpretive authority in all constitutional matters. In other words, most people on the panels and on the committee seemed to have the same difficulty that the anthropologist had imagining any kind of congressional role at all. Many of you may think the same thing. The hearing demonstrated to me as nothing I had experienced before the profound effect of the Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence during the past half century. From the 1950s to the present, we have witnessed the rise to prominence of a constitutional theory that gives the U.S. Supreme Court a virtual monopoly in American constitutional law. This theory grants the court conclusive authority to determine the meaning of constitutional provisions, even those provisions that empower the other supposedly co-equal branches of the national government. This theory has become so prominent that no serious discussion of the United States Constitution can proceed without acknowledgment of the fact that the court is now regarded by almost everyone to be the primary guardian of our fundamental law. The theme is echoed in scholarly books and articles. It's in the case books we use to train lawyers. It's in the political science textbooks we use to train citizens. It's in the councils of government, in the media, and even in the streets. The court's monopoly in constitutional law rests largely upon two kinds of argument. The first is political. It holds that judicial control of the Constitution is required in order to protect individuals and minority groups from majority tyranny. This tyranny, it is said, would be implemented by legislators in the absence of a judicial monopoly. The second argument is legal historical. It asserts that judicial supremacy in constitutional matters is grounded in, in American constitutional history and justified in Supreme Court doctrine, especially in the landmark case of Marbury versus Madison. Marbury is generally regarded by legal scholars as the leading precedent for U.S. Supreme Court authority to disregard acts of Congress that violate the Constitution. This authority has come to be known as the power of judicial review. In Marbury, the court for the first time in a unanimous decision accompanied by a fully reasoned opinion refused to enforce an act of Congress because of constitutional problems in the act. The contemporary power of Marbury has been graphically demonstrated in the recent hearings on Supreme Court nominees. They have each, in one way or another, been urged to swear fealty to Marbury. Borrowing the language of Senator Arlen Specter, Marbury is a super or super-duper precedent for modern judicial supremacy. Those of you who are familiar with the details of the Marbury case need to bear with me for a couple of minutes while I summarize them. Marbury arose in 1801 when William Marbury and three others who had been appointed justices of the peace in the District of Columbia by outgoing President John Adams failed to receive their commissions on the eve of Thomas Jefferson's inauguration. The new administration refused delivery of the commissions. 
the four would-be judges sued for writs of mandamus in the Supreme Court to force newly appointed Secretary of State James Madison to produce them. Political infighting developed over these and other 11th-hour Federalist judicial appointments in the months after Jefferson assumed office. Among other things, this infighting led to the Republican Senate's refusal to produce records of the confirmations and to congressional suspension of the court's 1802 terms, causing Marbury's case not to be tried until 1803. In its Marbury opinion, the court, per Chief Justice Marshall, ruled that Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, by empowering the court to issue writs of mandamus and original jurisdiction to any persons holding office under the authority of the United States, had impermissibly enlarged the court's jurisdiction beyond the terms of Article 3, which restricts the court's original jurisdiction to cases involving ambassadors, public ministers, consuls, or states. This meant that although Marbury had a legal right to his commission, which had been violated by Madison's failure to perform a ministerial duty, the court could not provide the requested relief because the congressional act on which Marbury relied was unconstitutional. In the final pages of the opinion, Chief Justice Marshall justified the court's constitutional analysis, arguing that the courts must say what the law is, that the Constitution is superior, paramount law, and that a legislative act in conflict with it is void. After establishing the principle that unconstitutional legislative acts are void, Marshall carefully restricted the court's power to invalidate such acts to cases in which the court is forced to ignore either the Constitution or the statute in order to decide the case before it. Thus, Marbury-style judicial review is very limited in scope. This is probably the reason why the case was largely ignored by courts and legal commentators until the late 19th century. Beginning in the 1880s, when the case was first cited as a precedent for judicial review by the Supreme Court, Marbury began its rise to prominence as a symbol in the progressive era controversy over the constitutional role of the courts. It was also during this era that the court began to invalidate acts of Congress with greater frequency, and so found Marbury's case a useful precedent. Since that time, the case has become an icon of American constitutional law. Throughout the 20th century, the case has been cited not only more frequently, but often in support of sweeping declarations of judicial supremacy that contrast sharply with the more modest Marbury of John Marshall's court. Before the Civil War, constitutional interpretation was performed continuously by all three branches of the federal government, by Congress and the President as much as by the court. The great debates in Congress during this period were arguments over the meaning of important constitutional provisions. The record of these controversies is permeated by assertions of legislative duty to interpret the Constitution both rightly and in accordance with accepted canons of construction. In the 1790s, debates in Congress on the meaning of key provisions in Articles 1, 2, and 3 shaped the contours of the federal government as it was to exist for a century and a half. At the same time, early presidential vetoes of congressional acts were exercised almost solely on constitutional grounds. Most of these were accompanied by explicit, uncontested assertions of executive authority to interpret the fundamental law. 
the doctrine of political questions, under which the court abstains from deciding constitutional issues for which there are insufficient judicial precedents that are textually committed to Congress or the President, or that are of an essentially political character, was strong in 19th century American law. It has been considerably weakened under modern judicial supremacy. This doctrine, first suggested by the Marshall Court in Marbury, was an early legal expression of the fundamental truth that not all constitutional problems are appropriate for resolution by courts. After the Civil War, the courts did become more aggressive in challenging laws believed to be constitutionally infirm. But tellingly, the Supreme Court itself didn't claim finality or conclusiveness for its own constitutional interpretations until 1958. The court made no assertion of power to control the boundaries of constitutional authority assigned to other agencies of government until the late 19th century, except in a narrow range of cases that will be described below. Thus, the origin of modern judicial supremacy in constitutional law can be found neither in the Constitution itself nor in its early judicial application. During earlier periods, questions about constitutional meaning were not generally regarded as solely or even primarily judicial. Tocqueville's famous statement, according to which all political questions sooner or later developed into judicial ones, described a feared tendency rather than reality. So had the earlier arguments of the anti-federalist Brutus. Brutus clearly saw vast potential for expansive judicial development in the 1787 Constitution. A century and a half later, his worst fears were realized. When Jeffersonian Republicans and Jacksonian Democrats launched early attacks on the court, they did so on the basis of a widespread belief that congressional or presidential interpretations of the Constitution were entitled to as much respect as those of the court. During the last half century, the Supreme Court has pressed its claim to be the primary, even exclusive, organ of constitutional interpretation in the United States. This claim has been made with increasing frequency, intensity, and success. The first assertion of constitutional hegemony came in 1958 in Cooper v. Aaron, the Little Rock School desegregation case. The court claimed for the first time finality for its readings of the Constitution, declaring that the federal judiciary is supreme in the exposition of the law of the Constitution. This ruling effectively equated the court's own constitutional interpretations with the Constitution itself. The legal peg supporting the maneuver was the court's assertion that its own constitutional rulings possessed Article VI supreme law status, Along, alongside constitutional provisions, national laws, and federal treaties. In another first, the Cooper Court wrongly cited Marbury versus Madison as precedent for its newly discovered ultimate authority. Because of the Cooper decision and its more recent progeny, many have come to believe that in Marbury, the court really had declared itself the primary organ of constitutional interpretation. This belief is a useful fiction for a court determined to establish its own constitutional hegemony. It allows the court to claim the support of John Marshall himself, the great Chief Justice, as authority for its assertion of power. Such doctrinal support is essential in a legal system with common law roots and stare decisis pretensions. But as the court's own record of precedence demonstrates, its post-1958 conception of American constitutional history is fundamentally wrong. 
A limited form of judicial review was already established by 1800, but only as to relatively clear cases. Marbury did not alter this. It merely established a clear precedent for the court's power to disregard congressional laws in cases of a judiciary nature, cases in which judicial functions were threatened by application of a questionable statutory provision. Marbury thus established only that the court would play an important role in constitutional interpretation, not that it would be the sole, ultimate, or final constitutional interpreter. The idea that a single organ of government must possess such authority is a product of later times. After Marbury, the court would not invalidate another act of Congress until the Dred Scott decision of the the 1850s. Nor would it cite Marbury in support of any kind of constitutional judicial review until the 1880s, and not in support of broad-gauged review until the 1950s. Since the decision in Cooper, the court has used Marbury to support its constitutional hegemony at least ten times, most recently in City of Bernie against Flores. There, the court invalidated a provision of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 that attempted to restore the compelling interest standard in free exercise cases that the court had declined to apply in the 1990 decision of Oregon v. Smith. In promulgating RIFRA, Congress relied upon its authority to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of the 14th Amendment, which by judicial ruling applies the First Amendment's free exercise clause to the states. But the court held in Bernie that the congressional enforcement authority is only remedial, not substantive, and thus that Congress is forbidden to determine the substance of the 14th Amendment's restrictions on the states, or to enact legislation which alters the meaning of the free exercise clause by determining what constitutes a constitutional violation. It is difficult to see how Congress can enforce the Constitution without being able to determine what constitutes a constitutional violation. But for tonight, the important point is this. The only reason why RIFRA can be said to have altered the meaning of the free exercise clause is that in Cooper, the court had put its own understandings of constitutional meaning, its interpretations on a par with the Constitution itself. In other words, according to the logic of Cooper, the court's decision in Oregon v. Smith is about, about the meaning of the free exercise clause is the free exercise clause. Not content, however, to rest upon this claim alone in Bernie, the court for the first time ever, so far as I know, explicitly denied the authority of Congress to interpret the Constitution with any conclusive effect or to define its own powers in accordance with it. Thus, the Bernie court, in spelling out the full implications of Cooper's final interpreter doctrine, appears to have brought the development of judicial supremacy in American constitutional law to completion. Modern judicial review is driven by a logic which affords the Supreme Court ultimate freedom to strike down laws merely because the justices believe those laws to be inconsistent with the Constitution. No matter what the constitutional issue involved and no matter how clear the constitutional assignment of authority to another branch of government, coordinate agencies of government, the policies of which are defeated by the court, are then expected to goose step to the court-imposed drumbeat even to the point of conforming future policy choice to judicial preference. It hasn't always been so. Nowhere is this better shown than in the court's historical treatment of the Marbury case, the very case misrepresented in Cooper and Bernie to support constitutional judicial supremacy. In Cooper, Bernie, and all the other cases since 1958, 
in which the court has asserted its constitutional, conclusive constitutional authority, it has relied upon Marbury for support. But Marbury does not support such authority. Marbury involved Article III's original appellate jurisdictional distribution, a provision directly addressed to the court. Bernie involved the 14th Amendment, whose enforcement provision is directly addressed to Congress. Marbury contains no assertion of an exclusive authority in the court to bind other parts of the government. Chief Justice Marshall claimed only that the court must obey explicit commands of the Constitution in preference to conflicting laws when such commands are directed at the court itself and not to another branch of government. Madison's remarks in congressional debate over the removal authority of the president indicate that the father of the Constitution agreed with Marshall. After acknowledging that in the ordinary course of government, the exposition of the laws and Constitution devolves upon the judicial, Madison begged to know upon what principle it can be contended that any one department draws from the Constitution greater powers than another in marking out the limits of the powers of the several departments. The court's own treatment of Marbury as a precedent throughout most of its history shows that this narrow reading is accurate. In Marbury v. Madison and Judicial Review, I surveyed all the court's citations of Marbury from 1803 to 1983. I have since updated the references through 2005. Here's what I found. Between 1803 and 2005, Marbury was cited in 225 separate opinions by justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. From the beginning to 1865, Marbury was cited 25 times. 18 times to support narrow rulings on the court's original or appellate jurisdiction, and seven times on the appropriateness of using the common law writ of mandamus in particular situations. The court's power to invalidate laws was mentioned in none of these cases. Surprisingly, Marbury was not mentioned in Dred Scott v. Sanford, 1857, the only other case before the Civil War in which the court invalidated an act of Congress. The pattern continued during the 30-year period following the Civil War. This is a period in which the court invalidated national laws in no fewer than 20 cases. Marbury was mentioned in none of them. As in earlier periods, the instances in which Marbury was cited pertain mostly to jurisdiction or mandamus. However, it is during this period that Marbury was first cited in support of judicial review, though not to support court review of an act of Congress. Instead, the citation was in Mugler v. Kansas in 1887 and was offered in justification of judicial authority to overturn state laws on substantive due process grounds. Amazingly, the Mugler court did not even seem to know what the Marbury court had decided on the issue of constitutional review. It was not until the decision of the income tax case in 1895 that the court for the first time cited Marbury in support of its power to determine the constitutionality of national laws, confining the reach of that authority to clear or proper cases. Between 1895 and 1957, the justices cited Marbury in 38 additional instances, hardly more often than during the 30-year period preceding 1895. Twelve citations refer to mandamus or jurisdiction. Eighteen sites involve such issues as common law rights and remedies, the removal power of the president, executive appointments and commissions, and national or constitutional supremacy. Only eight of the Marbury sites during this period pertain to judicial power to invalidate laws, 
and all eight describe the power in a very narrow or restrictive way. Six offer Marbarian support of the idea that judicial review should be confined to clear or proper cases, cases or controversies, or to cases in which literal interpretations of the Constitution are possible. One notes a petitioner's argument that Marbury forbids executive invasions of the judicial sphere. Another mentions Marbury as one of a long line of cases in which legislation was declared unconstitutional because it imposed on the court powers or functions that were regarded as outside the scope of the judicial power lodged in the court by the Constitution. The court began to notice Marbury's judicial review holding during the first half of the 20th century, yet fully recognizing its highly restrictive nature. All told, of the 88 sites of Marbury by justices of the Supreme Court between 1803 and 1957, only 10 refer to that portion of the Marshall opinion that concerns judicial power to invalidate laws. All 10 of these references advance highly restrictive notions of the court's power. Nowhere can be found even so much as a suggestion that the court is the final arbiter of constitutional questions. If Marbury really meant what the Cooper and Burney court said it meant, why wouldn't someone on the court have said so during its first century and a half of existence? Everything changed in 1958. Over the next 48 years, there were 137 separate citations of Marbury, This is a number that far eclipses the total of the previous 154 years. During this period, Marbury was employed 67 times to support judicial review, 21 times to justify sweeping assertions of judicial power, and 10 times to support the idea that the court is final or ultimate interpreter of the Constitution, with power to issue binding proclamations to any other agency or department of government respecting any constitutional issue. Cooper v. Aaron is the earliest case in the last-mentioned category, and Bernie is, to my knowledge, the most recent. If we take the Court's own statements seriously, we must conclude that judicial supremacy originated neither in Marbury nor in the Constitution. It was established by the Warren Court and developed subsequently by the Berger and Rehnquist Courts. The history of Marbury is thus a perfect illustration of the way in which a precedent in its journey through time could come to mean something very different from what it meant when originally handed down. Marbury's development resembles the children's game of gossip, in which the first child whispers a secret in the ear of another child, the second child whispers it to a third, and so on until the last child states the secret aloud, the final version of the secret being altogether different from the original. The Marbury case had become a fulcrum for for an almost complete transformation of constitutional judicial review in the American Republic. Why should anyone care whether the court, when discussing a two-centuries-old precedent, is talking about a real case that was decided in 1803 or about an entirely different case that never really happened? Because the case that never really happened has become the very symbol of American constitutional law. It is the case without which, according to E.S. Corwin, there would be no constitutional law. The transformation of Marbury from a decision that affirmed a narrow authority in the courts to disregard acts of Congress in a limited range of cases cases, to one that supports a much broader authority to invalidate laws of any kind in any circumstances required an extensive rewriting of American constitutional history. 
This rewriting was done by legal commentators in the late 19th and early, early 20th centuries. The result of the rewriting was the creation of what I call the Marbury myth. This myth holds that modern judicial power rests upon decisions of the early Supreme Court. It is the constitutional fiction that grounds modern judicial supremacy. I examine the myth and its historiography in Marbury versus Madison and Judicial Review. Since that time, I have been working on a number of foundational issues in jurisprudence, and the study has shed some light on a question not directly addressed in Marbury and Review. Why were and are the legal and academic communities so willing to accept the Marbury myth as truth? Perhaps the acquiescence of the legal profession might be understood in terms of self-interest, since it can be argued that judicial supremacy advances the economic and political interests of lawyers. Perhaps there is a natural elitism among academics that attracts us to constitutional decision-making by a small group of well-trained experts. Still, in order to sustain this kind of mythology for such a long time, it seemed that something more fundamental must have happened to change the way people look at laws and constitutions. While thinking about these questions, it became evident that some of the same patterns of thinking that I'd noticed earlier in contemporary thinking about the Marshall Court and Marbury also applied to modern thinking about the early Supreme Court and the founding era in general. The misunderstandings seemed to be of the same type. They were systematic, not isolated. All seemed to stem from thinking about the antebellum Supreme Court as if it were a modern court. In the end, what I discovered was that an entire way of looking at the legal world had disappeared during the middle of the 19th century. The most important effect of this disappearance was to render essentially invisible the style of constitutional and legal interpretation employed by the early Supreme Court. This style of interpretation presupposed a conception of law as an objective reality. The reality stands apart from any particular interpretation or application, thus firmly recognizing the sharp distinction between constitution and constitutional law. The style of interpretation employed by the early court had its roots in medieval jurisprudence, the formative era of the common law, and in the thought of modern natural law thinkers such as Grotius, Pufendorf, Vattel, and Blackstone. I call the jurisprudential basis of this earlier style of interpretation legal naturalism. I do so to distinguish it from legal positivism. Legal positivism is the jurisprudential basis of the interpretive approach employed by most modern courts and jurists. But legal positivism did not arise by itself in a vacuum. It was given philosophical support by complementary doctrines that were themselves new, at least on the American scene. The jurisprudential world of the early Supreme Court has often been referred to, the world view, I'm sorry, uh, of the early Supreme Court has often been referred to as the declaratory theory of law. It's really a tradition, not a theory. I prefer to call the tradition a natural law or naturalistic interpretive tradition. Its proponents viewed natural law not only as a collection of universally valid substantive moral principles grounded in human nature, but also as an interpretive approach. Antebellum constitutional jurisprudence was based on this tradition, but the tradition began to disappear after the Civil War and has since been largely ignored by contemporary commentators. Judges and lawyers of Marshall's day believed that all human law was drawn from underlying principles of order, ethics, and morality. 
This means that the substance of the law pre-exists its declaration by courts or other authoritative interpreters. When a court applies the law to resolve a case, it must find that law, which includes determining its consistency with the underlying principles of natural justice. The court then declares or says what the law is, to use Marshall's famous phrase. The declaratory theory ascribes to the law an objective reality, an underlying essence or unity, a reason of the law that transcends particular applications. According to Lord Cook, legal rules are many, but legal reason is one. Blackstone reflects this conception of the law when he holds that lex non scripta, the unwritten law, is knowable by the application of reason to legal experience, and that precedents found to be absurd or unjust are not merely bad law, they were never law at all. Blackstone also clearly distinguishes between law declaratory of natural rights and duty and laws determinative of things indifferent, adding that for acts that are wrong in themselves, the municipal or positive law adds nothing to the obligations stemming from natural or divine law. Without this objectivity in which judges discover the law rather than make it, law becomes merely an instrument of power. It becomes whatever the legislature, court, or tyrant says it is. It becomes... A mere empirical fact loses its normative force and fails to carry sufficient moral obligation to bind the subject. If the law has an underlying essence of this sort, a core of truth that must be discovered and declared by courts and other authoritative interpreters, then there must be rules of interpretation that are designed to assist in the ascertainment of the underlying essence. The jurists who expounded the naturalistic interpretive tradition formulated a number of such rules for construing written instruments. In the interest of time, I'll simply summarize the formulations of Blackstone, Pufendorf, Grotius, and Vattel. Marshall provides a similar formulation in Brown versus Maryland and elaborates the general formulation in several other opinions. First, for all five commentators, the will or intention of the lawgiver is the law. Second, all assert that discernment of intent must begin from a consideration of the words used by the lawgiver to express the law. Third, all assert that general custom and common usage are the standards to be employed for resolving ambiguities in the meaning of the words used by the lawgiver. Fourth, all declare or strongly suggest that the context of the context of that portion of the law being interpreted, its relation to other parts of the same law, is relevant for determination of its meaning. In other words, that laws should be harmonized. There should be no surplusage in the law. Fifth, all emphasize that the object, end, or purpose of the law, the mischief that it was enacted to overcome, is crucial for determining its meaning. And finally, all allow consideration of effects or consequences of the law only when its terms, as commonly understood, would yield an absurdity in its application. Expounding a, a, a bit further on the jurisprudential worldview captured in these six principles. First, legal interpretation is conceived as a process of discovery. Second, the method of discovery consists in looking for signs. Third, the signs looked for are signs of conscious purpose. Fourth, the conscious purposes are the designs of lawgivers revealed either in words or in acts from which meanings reasonably may be inferred. 
Fifth, the conscious law-giving purposes that are discovered by interpreters are constrained or limited purposes embedded within a pre-existent body of law and which must be harmonized with the discoveries of other authoritative interpreters. This harmony must exist with respect both to the internal structure of the law and to its external moral or equitable basis. In some, the law is explicitly conservative, It is rational, just, and real. It is a set of conscious purposes revealed by a train of authoritative signs reflecting more or less successful attempts by lawgivers to capture an essential legal reality that finds its source beyond the law. Now, it goes without saying we no longer see the legal world in the way just described. We tend to regard law as a semi-coherent train of commands, articulating the largely unconscious or half-conscious drives of dominant ruling passions and interests, more or less blindly progressing towards some yet unknown future state. This is due largely to the onset and acceptance of several ideologies that were essentially unknown in the time of Marshall. First of these is legal positivism. Although the roots of positivism in the law are certainly much older, its formulation as a comprehensive theory was accomplished by the English philosopher John Austin in the 1830s. It became generally acceptable in the United States only in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Austin formulated his analysis as a jurisprudence of positive law without denying the existence or importance of other categories of legal experience, such as divine or natural law. However, his philosophical descendants have tended to advance legal positivism as a hardened ideological position, denying legal status to any rules except those posited as commands of a temporal sovereign with power to visit evil upon disobedience subjects. Under this approach, law is no longer conceived as a quest for social order rooted in human nature, in which courts must discover the reason of the law and then declare it when deciding cases. The declaratory theory at the heart of the naturalistic interpretive tradition of the early court gives way to the positivist idea of the judge as a lawmaker. The second of these modern ideologies is progressivism. Modern progressivism, traceable to such thinkers as Condorcet in the 18th century and Augusta Comte and John Stuart Mill in the 19th, found jurisprudential support in the writings of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Holmes regarded the law as always and inevitably progressing toward some future state that embodied the interests of a dominant social elite. Progressive historians like Charles Beard, Vernon Parrington, and J. Allen Smith, looking to the future, not to the past, in their writing of history, devalued and distorted much of the court's early history, not to mention much of the history of the founding itself. The founders were recast by the progressives as a dominant socioeconomic elite bent on safeguarding wealth and social position. The early court, consisting entirely of federalists, was to be the judicial organ of this dominant class. It was to be the institution that would construct and develop legal safeguards for its members and their property. Along with this new view of the Constitution and the early court came a new view of John Marshall and the Marbury case. First, conservative leaders of the American bar, bent on aggrandizing the power of the federal courts to protect corporate property interests, resurrected Marbury to serve as the leading precedent for what they hoped would become judicial supremacy. 
Accepting this mythical version of the case, legal progressives then revised the history of the case, claiming that Marshall had in Marbury illegitimately appropriated the power of judicial review so that he could use that power to protect the property interests of the wealthy against depredation by the states. The view suggested by this reading of Marbury, an important facet of which I've referred to as the Marbury myth, holds that the landmark decisions of the Marshall Court were founded at bottom upon an unwarranted usurpation of legislative authority. They were politically motivated and essentially unprecedented. In so holding, the progressive historians contributed to a devaluation of Marshall's reputation as a judge, giving the impression that Marshall's decisions were based on politics rather than law. As Christopher Wolfe has aptly noted, Marshall is generally regarded today as the representative of views that he himself would undoubtedly disown. The almost unchallenged understanding of Marshall today is comprised in a view that dismisses his own statements as words well and finely said but not to be taken seriously. The third and final ideology that I shall mention is behavioralism. Behavioralism is a methodological orientation that has been the chief contribution of political science to misunderstanding of the early Supreme Court. As currently practiced, it is a reductionist enterprise that attempts to understand human activity by observing, quantifying, and aggregating discrete instances of behavior without reference to the ends or purposes of this behavior. The classical worldview, on the other hand, in virtually all its dimensions from Aristotle down through the ages, regards conscious ends or purposes to be the wellspring of human activity. In classical ethics and political science, human nature is oriented or inclined to the summum bonum, the moral and intellectual goods of the virtuous and contemplative life. In classical jurisprudence, Law is conceived as the rule, ordering the good society, so as to allow pursuit of the highest good by individuals. Classical jurisprudence, thus, is a teleological jurisprudence. Behavioralists rule out teleology, so they cannot really look to conscious purposes for orientation of the research enterprise. Consequently, there is an incessant drive on the part of public law scholars in political science at least, which is the field that I'm in, to discover unconscious motives to explain judicial behavior. In other words, court decisions are not really based on the reasoned jurisprudential doctrines announced in written judicial opinions. Even less are they regarded as the product of faithful attempts to apply the rules of interpretation. Rather, these doctrines are seen as merely a cover for personal preferences or predilections that are themselves the product of murky, unconscious, or semi-conscious forces in the judicial psyche. If this, is a pro this approach is problematic when used to, used to study the modern Supreme Court, which after all is at least a post-Freud, post-Marx, post-Weber, post-Beard court, how much more problematic must it be when applied to an antebellum court, the judges of which would have regarded the doctrines of all the above-mentioned thinkers as flatly absurd? General acceptance of positivism, progressivism, behavioralism, and also a host of other isms like materialism, and I won't give you the whole list because there's probably about 22 of them, um, the general acceptance of all these isms has affected a monumental change in American attitudes toward law and government during the last century. Our immersion in the jurisprudence that follows from these beliefs has taken us far from the constitutional jurisprudence of antebellum courts. 
If we believe that constitutions and laws are mere tools of powerful political or economic interests, then it will be hard not to read early Supreme Court opinions as if they were apologies for such interests. If we believe that laws are merely the commands of a sovereign, then we will think it either naive or disingenuous for Chief Justice Marshall to run on about the majestic generalities of the Constitution as if they could be thought about apart from the concerns of the moment. If we think that all is matter, then we'll think that when Justices Patterson and Chase talk about the sanctity of private property, their real concern must have been the property and not the sanctity. If we think of constitutional cases as political games rather than principled controversies, then we will have difficulty taking seriously the high-toned discussions in many of Marshall's or Story's opinions. If we don't believe that objective truth exists, then it is not likely that we will end up believing that there is any such thing as objective law. And that means that there can be no such thing as correct constitutional interpretation. In the end, we'll probably stop thinking about interpreting laws and constitutions at all and start making things up to suit our need, fancied needs of the moment. If we like what the judges make up, then we'll conclude they have interpreted the Constitution correctly. If we don't like what they make up, then we'll conclude they got it wrong. If we think that judges don't discover the law but instead make it, then we'll read the early court's opinions as judicial legislation. Some will find that it legislated well, others that it legislated badly. If we believe that judges make decisions based not on law, but rather on the basis of non-legal preferences, then we will look for and no doubt find other baser, unconscious, perhaps motives lurking between the lines of the early court's opinions. What I'm suggesting is this. Perhaps we can't help believing what we believe, but why do we insist on attributing what we believe to people who manifestly did not believe what we believe? In making these attributions, we've seriously compromised our ability to understand the constitutional jurisprudence of the early Supreme Court. We've not paid sufficient attention to the interpretive tradition inherited by the early court and the beliefs that supported that tradition. That means that we read the opinions of the early court as exercises in judicial lawmaking rather than as attempts to discover and declare a pre-existing constitutional consensus. We read the cases as, as if they had been decided by judges who believe that the normative force of law is derived solely from the command of a sovereign rather than from a dictate of reason. We read the cases as if they had been decided by judges who believed that society was inevitably and continually progressing to a better state and that their role as judges was to help society get there as fast as possible. We read the cases as if they had been decided by judges who were monistic materialists and thus believed that the social good was quantitative in character and that economic motives determined the law of the Constitution. The judges of Marshall's time believed none of these things, nor did the drafters and ratifiers of the United States Constitution. In the end, the demise of the naturalistic interpretive tradition has rendered plausible Chief Justice Hughes' famous remark that the Constitution is what the court says it is. But no justice of John Marshall's time could have made such a statement. Thank you. Thank you for that very rich presentation. You've given us a lot to think about uh, and pushed us to think more deeply, I think, about foundations of uh, contemporary judicial uh, 
action. Um, Professor Lowry has agreed to, to take some questions. We, we uh, as those of you who are, are regulars know, we have a practice of asking uh, any students who are present uh, to ask the first questions. So uh, let me open it up to the students here. Yes, sir. Well, um, uh, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, um, the, I, I started the. I, let me let me try to restate the question as best I can. The question is for for anyone who didn't may may not have heard it. Um, isn't the the fact that we have judicial supremacy in the modern sense partly a result of other branches or other agencies of government essentially? abdicating to the courts, right? I mean, that's, that's the first part of your question, at least. And, and so if they're going to do that, um, what choice do we have but to let them do that? Is, is that fair restatement? Well, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, it's very clear that the, the second time that the court um, exercised judicial review was in Dred Scott, and it's well known that uh, that prior to Dred Scott, Congress tried but failed a number of times to deal with the the question of slavery in the territories. Um, they even certified the question to the Supreme Court. Uh, I believe it was in 1856. So the answer is, yeah, it's, it's true. Politicians obviously don't like to deal with especially difficult constitutional questions, especially those kinds of questions that would touch on uh, moral dilemmas. Abortion is a, is a classic contemporary example of that. Um, I guess my answer would be I'm not arguing to ditch judicial supremacy, I'm arguing to ditch the falsified history that supports it. And, and that's really a different question. I wonder why we have to falsify history to support an institution that we love so much. I'm not sure if that's a good answer to the question. But, okay. Other student questions? All right, let's open it up then for anyone. Professor Holloway. I was wondering, is there any dissent in the Bernie case that even broke in the direction of, I guess, having an appreciation for the original understanding of what the proper scope of judicial power would be, or is there anyone on the Supreme Court that is getting kind of glimmering at what the proper limits of the court's power would be? I mean, you refer to the court, and I almost get the feeling that maybe that every member of the court. I think you're almost right on that. Um, it, it's, oh, I'm sorry, yes, uh, the question. Um, 
is there anyone on the court who 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 holds a more restrictive view of judicial power than uh, than than than, than, than what we find in the majority opinions in, say, the Bernie case or Cooper v. Aaron, or, right? I mean, is that a fair restatement? Uh, Justice Scalia comes closer, perhaps, than any. I mean, he's the only one that I know of that describes judicial review as a power to disregard as opposed to a power to strike down. Most of the justices like that hatchet. Metaphor. You know, they like to think of the laws that they're 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 disregarding as actually being executed somehow. And I I know uh, in the, I guess, I think it's the Reynoldsville Casket Company versus Hyde. I'd have to go back and I believe that's the case uh, where where Scalia actually um, gives marshals conception, his definition of judicial review, which is a power to disregard as, a, as, composed to, as opposed to a power to strike down. Um, but the truth is most of the justices and just Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist, who I have great respect for, um, still seems, seem transfixed by the, the modern view of Marbury. Almost everyone is. It's 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 very difficult to to um, I think to cut through that because uh, we we are so wedded to this notion of modern judicial supremacy and the ultimate authority of the court to strike down acts of Congress and state legislatures, and we love it so much. Um, I sense that we can't stand the idea of attributing that kind of judicial review to the case which is the true precedent for it, and that's Dred Scott, and for fairly obvious reasons, I think. Um, I don't know of any dissent in Bernie, though, that does. I'll have to go back and look. I haven't taught, I've been teaching political philosophy and not constitutional law for the, for, for the last four or five years, and, and, and consequently I'm not as, I'm a little bit rusty on the on the cases, but I'll, I'll, I'll go back and take a look at it. It's a good question. I, I think we're in a situation now with respect to uh, presidential power um, where you have uh, the Bush administration in its, in the, when Bush signed the, I think the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, he added a statement, a signing statement, which is commonplace but uh, pointed uh, to the fact that nothing in the act would, would, would be understood by him to interfere with his power as commander-in-chief. And he also said that the act must be interpreted consistent with judicial limitations, which I think is an interesting, uh, rather novel um, thing for a president to do, which is to suggest that uh, uh, there are judicial, there is a judicial limitation in the manner in which it will interpret executive authority at the end of the day on this, and that the White House seems to be willing to uh, argue in favor of that limitation. Other questions? Professor George.
So I'm not sure, I guess, in response to Justice Holloway's question, whether we would really discern much of what the justices in dissent thought one way or another by looking at their opinions in Bernie, despite the fact that it would have been a perfect opportunity for anybody who did dissent uh, from the sweeping view uh, to, uh, to step back from it and register their dissent uh, uh, right there. Um, well, I think... Uh, it's also the case that Scalia wrote the, uh, the, the, the majority opinion in the Smith case, I believe. And so, and he's quite wedded to that, uh, even though he's been, been attacked from it from several, or for it from several quarters. But thank you for getting me off the hook on that one. Yeah, I would, I would, I would suspect that he is, um, just from the tone of his opinions. Uh, I think, I think he's very, I think he would come closer than the other justices, and perhaps Thomas somewhat too. Anyway, I. Boy, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, good questions are always hard to answer. Um, it's quite possible, but but the whole reason that, on the other hand, the whole reason that Nixon was in that situation was because of his his, his, his weakened position. I, w I would have to assume. Um, there are some parallels between the Nixon case and the Marbury case, actually, uh, because in the Marbury case, you know, in the in the in the, in the trial. Uh, Part of that case, the um, the Attorney General, who had been acting Secretary of State Levi Lincoln, um, was 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 called to testify, and on one or two of the four or five questions that were put to him, I think uh, uh, pleaded executive privilege, as I think a couple of other members of the State Department did at that time. So, uh, Marbury may be the first time that the the question that was the core of the Nixon case actually came before the court.
Well, in the beginning, uh, presidents very clearly saw their responsibility, one of their responsibilities, as to as interpreting the Constitution rightly. The first nine presidential vetoes, for example, I think I'm right on this, could have been ten, nine or ten, the first nine or ten presidential vetoes all were explicitly on constitutional grounds. These are all the vetoes that presidents uh, made of congressional statutes from 1789 through the early 1830s. And they were all explicitly done on constitutional grounds. Uh, if you look at, in the, at the debates in Congress in the 1790s and all the way up through throughout most of the antebellum, the pre-Civil War period, um, you find lively constitutional debates in Congress uh, over all kinds of issues. In the beginning, in the 1790s, it was over the, the, the business of what uh, the, 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 the national government was going to look like. Um, you know, the bills, the, the post office, the, the, um, the State Department, or foreign affairs, and so on. And it was in that debate, one of those debates, it was actually a debate over the, the, the uh, president's removal power, um, when Madison basically said uh, that all three branches of government have constitutional authority to interpret their own, the scope and extent of their own powers. So what I would say is, in the beginning, um, the notion of constitutional review was tripartite. And in other words, everybody had constitutional responsibility. Um, now, most people, including most representatives and senators in Congress, this was clearly proved by the congressional hearing that I went to, most of the I would say a majority of people on the, the subcommittee on the Constitution and the House Judiciary Committee uh, believed that Congress had essentially no role in interpreting the Constitution. They found it, some of them found it very strange that um, the chair had called the hearing in the first place. They think of their job as just passing laws on political and economic grounds, we'll leave it to the courts, to decide all the legal questions. And constitutional questions are legal questions. So um, there's been a huge transformation historically between the founding era and now. Uh, let me press you on, on one aspect of uh, your interpretation of Marbury. Uh, you know a lot more about it than I do, but uh, I'm, so I'm sure you've heard this question before. But um, uh, I'm willing to defer to you on the question of whether Marshall was arguing for judicial supremacy, your answer that he was not. Um, but you also argued that uh, Marbury v. Madison stands for the judicial power to review acts of the other branches of government that intrude upon the judicial function itself. And while that's certainly true to the facts of the case. Uh, is there anything in Marshall's statement of the judicial power and what its uh, scope and limits uh, are that would suggest that he would so limit it? Um, 
when you look beyond Marbury to other Marshall Court decisions, you see the court, while not striking down any acts of Congress, you do see the courts reviewing acts of Congress for their constitutionality. Uh, and these are acts that have nothing to do with an intr possible intrusion on the judicial function. They're commerce power cases, uh, there's McCullough v. Maryland, Gibbons v. Ogden, and so forth. And the question is, you know, what is Congress's power as stated in the Constitution? Um, wouldn't that suggest that at least Marshall thought that the that judicial review extended beyond the review of governmental acts that intrude on judicial uh, power. Hmm. Okay. I hope I don't have to restate that one. No, no. The only, there is a statement in Marbury. Are you talking about statements, you're asking about statements in Marbury versus Madison or in any of That's the other? That's part of it. And then how do you, how do you square your restrictive interpretation with other Marshall Court uh, decisions where the court did review the constitutionality of legislation, uh, legislation well, that had nothing to do with judicial power. Okay, McCulloch's a classic example here. So, so we could, if you let me uh, do McCulloch, I, I think that's the best example I have. And I think this is characteristic of, of most of Marshall's decisions. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that Marshall never made an incautious remark or, or said something that, that, that would be out of line with that view. On the other hand, um, just a couple of, actually less than two months before Marbury was decided on circuit, Marshall, I believe it was Ogden against Blackledge, s suggested that the only time he would strike down an act of, the, of Congress of the national legislature is if it intruded on judicial functions. Uh, judicial independence was his primary concern. You can also find that concern reflected in Marshall's statements all the way back into the 1780s uh, when he was a lawyer and when he was a member of the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Um, now to McCulloch. Um, I read McCulloch as essentially confirming what I've said about the court's attitude toward uh, Congress and the other branches of government. Um, the, the, for, I, I suppose that most of you know what that case was, but it was the great uh, national bank case decided in 1819. In it, Marshall basically said that, uh, and the Marshall Court ruled that Congress essentially could determine um, the extent, the reach, of its implied power under the necessary and proper clause. That's how I would, that's how I read that case. So, so I think it's a pretty good example of how Marsh, the Marshall Court and the early Supreme Court in general was extremely deferential to the other branches of government when it was construing their powers. I see what you're saying because the mere fact they were deciding the case uh, would, would, would sort of indicate that, well, you know, there might have been a chance under other conditions or other circumstances that they would have invalidated the law. Um, I don't Marshall says in McCullough that, you know, if, if the Congress were to exercise its power 
uh, under the pretense of trying to reach a constitutional object, yeah. but in fact was doing trying to do something unconstitutional, would be the painful duty of the court to strike it down. Exactly. So, that is the painful duty phrase. You're right about that, and Marshall did make it. He also made an incautious remark in uh, Marbury about the appellate and, and, and original jurisdiction, which he had to take back in, in Cohen's against Virginia, and, and, and where he gave us the, 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 uh, the definition of dicta, that all general expressions in, a, in, in an opinion must be confined to the circumstances of the case. And anything that goes beyond that, the circumstances of that case, are in, would be entitled to respect, but do not qualify as precedent. I don't know if that's a very good answer to your question. But. Uh, Professor McAuliffe. You uh, dated the modern Well, that, you know, that's interesting because I, I, I don't know, and I don't know a lot, a lot about the, uh, the, the, the European court. Um, I do know that there is a, a growing interest in judicial um, decision-making all over the world. Um, and I, I guess I would say that, that one of those, uh, one of the reasons is clearly the, the, the pass the buck thing. You know, the politicians uh, don't want to deal with questions that are lot like abortion, the right to die. The, you know, these are, these are slavery back in the 19th century. Uh, legislatures don't, democratically elected legislatures don't like to deal with issues like that. Um, on the other hand, we also are becoming a... I don't know, I'm trying to put it, we're also, we also seem to be more and more interested um, in, in, in being governed by expertise. We're becoming more bureaucratic. Does that make any sense? Uh, we like to be governed, as I said in my talk or suggested in my talk, we, we, um, we I think, like to think that our policies are based on, on knowledge. And this is something that... Uh, Academics and intellectuals are largely responsible for. I think we're more comfortable with that. And I think as the world, as we as we get more bureaucratized and we get more expertise ensconced in, in, in um, policy making processes, it's not all that surprising that we would that we would see questions being shifted to uh, courts. But I don't have any direct knowledge of you know I, I, I'm just speculating grossly here because I don't really have an, don't have an answer to that question. I don't know a lot about the European court. I have to study those cases a little more fully.
there were clear statements from the, legis the state legislatures that were overturned. Were those cases correctly decided? I don't know if I'm comfortable dealing with them en masse like that. Um, Cooper v. Aaron was uh, the court was what the court was trying to do was 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 clearly laudable. It was trying to get the, the desegregation decision enforced, and Arkansas was not cooperating. Uh, this happened, of course, all over the South. I I think this is a different issue than the one I'm addressing. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are sometimes. Uh, felt needs of the moment. Again, it's an example, a classic example of how the political branches couldn't deal with an issue of, of uh, overriding importance, and so the court stepped up and did its thing. And now, if you're asking me whether it was rightly decided from from a moral standpoint, yes. From a legal stand, strictly legal standpoint, um, probably not. I think at the time, most most constitutional scholars said, "Well, this is the court going really." way beyond um, the traditional rules of interpretation. Um, so it depends on what you mean by right, I guess. No, well, correctly decided was it jurisprudentially sound. I don't think, you know, I don't think there's any dispute about whether they were the morally right decision. Uh, according to the 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 notion of interpret I, th I think the question would come down to how you how much you allow um, natural law to impact Supreme Court decision making and uh, I think you could go either way on that I, I don't have a you know flat out black or white answer yes or no answer to that I would say that uh, depends on your jurisprudence. Let me, let Again, me my, my, my focus here is not on, you know, the rightness or wrongness of particular decisions. It's in the, the way we do our history. Still, I think there, this is an interesting question because it, what the court was doing in Cooper v. Aaron was, as you said, enforcing its desegregation uh, decision in Brown v. Board uh, that was not being enforced. In fact, the, the enforcement was being obstructed uh, in certain states in the South. And it raises the question of uh, to what extent uh, or whether Supreme Court decisions are binding on states. You mentioned the Supremacy Clause. Um, it which binds state judges to the supremacy of the federal constitution and its laws and so forth, does it bind state institutions, governmental institutions, to decisions of the United States Supreme Court? I guess that would be the jurisprudential issue. Well, the constitutional question on Article Six, there's no question about it. That that that's if you, I, I, I took your question actually to go to the root of of of, of the thing, which is 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 Brown one. <clears throat> I mean, if Brown one was correctly decided, jurisprudentially correct, as you put it, uh, then clearly Cooper v. Aaron was because it was just an attempt to actually enforce Brown two, and. 
uh, I think the, the jurisprudential issue and the controversy which developed at the time goes to Brown 1. Let's see, way in the back. I want to continue with the fact that George brought up what was brought up here, was brought up there. And my question, using Loving versus Virginia instead of Brown and Cooper, my question is, as Professor George said, if Nixon refused to turn over the tapes, what then is the remedy? Does Congress then have to impeach and do you get two branches saying it's constitutional, what's going on? And it's something like Loving versus Virginia. If you look at the supremacy clause and Virginia says, no, we disagree. My concern with your talk is that I'm not sure what you would propose as the appropriate remedy that the offended other branch of government or state would have. There wouldn't necessarily be one. A little anarchy in constitutional law might not be such a bad thing. One more. Let's have one. This gentleman. Yes. Um, you spoke about uh, the role for the court protecting minorities. Um, do you think the court does have its role, uh, both from the historical perspective that you were speaking about with uh, the marginal court, um, and from a modern perspective of, uh, of whether it should be allowed? And if so, is it necessary for the court to have final interpretive authority in order to protect minorities? Um, I, 
I think that the primary role should be played by legislatures. Um, so, and then it seems to me that that it's the it's 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 the role of all three branches of government to protect minorities. I don't I don't see why we should have to have a special position, a higher position for the court in that respect. In other words, there are statutory rights as well as constitutional ones. I'm, I'm not sure what statement in, in my talk you're referring to when, though, when Oh, majority tyranny? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's true. That's a problem. And we do have to have courts to protect individual rights. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I'd rather not put them as minority rights because you're sort of suggesting that groups have rights there. I'm not sure how far I want to go with that one. But um, certainly, as Marshall said in Marbury versus Madison, it's the province of courts to decide on the rights of individuals, just like he was, the court was, was having to do in Marbury's case. And so I guess I'd, I'd say that the court has a special role only in the sense that courts, it's, it's the province of the courts to resolve disputes and, and to decide cases involving individuals and apply the law to individuals in circumstances in which they've gotten caught up in disputes, either with other individuals or with, uh, with the government. And so in that sense, the court has a special role, but not, uh, I think in the modern sense, uh, it's, 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 it's been carried somewhat beyond that. Yeah, I, I think if we think of one category of minority, racial minorities, I think you could make a pretty good case that it's uh, Congress that has been a better protector of minority rights than courts. You have Brown v. Board, which is very famous, but you have loads of civil rights acts over a, a century and a, and a quarter, uh, many of which were struck down by the Supreme Court uh, in, in the 19th century. Uh, so I think it's, you know, if you're just talking about the quantity of liberty that's been protected, liberty held by minorities, I'm sure it's, it's Congress that would uh, be their champion. May I add some point yeah. to that? You know, there's, a, there's an article by um, a fellow named Edgerton in the Cornell Law Review, 1938, I believe, somewhere in that time, which, which uh, lists and essentially digests all of the instances in which the Supreme Court had protected individual rights in exercising judicial review. And it was pretty meager <laughs> prior to 1938. Um, I, I don't know what that says, but, but uh, through, that what it does say is through about three-quarters of our history, the courts don't have a very good uh, record at doing that. Mm -hmm. 
I don't remember how he counted. It's been about ten years since I read it. But uh, I, at any rate, it's it's it's. Oh yes, absolutely. And and one final thing, uh, the 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 loving v. Virginia example um, um, strikes me that that is a state case, and that means it's Article Six, and that mean and that means national supremacy applies, and so. Um, we hadn't really been doing that, but but it, it might be good to differentiate the Marbury type case where you're dealing with with uh, separation of powers issue essentially, which is how I treat it, um, from the, the the federalism question, which comes up in cases like Loving and Brown and and uh, Cooper. It's it's been great having a political scientist here who's historically sensitive. Uh, it's something that the Madison program is in favor of and uh, attempts to promote in its own small way. Uh, so please join me in thanking Professor Clinton. Thank you.